How the left and right undermine trust in government. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Trust in the federal government declined as Americans heard more negative rhetoric about a government captured by special interests. That argument was perfected by Republicans, who used distrust to advance conservatism from Goldwater and Reagan to the Tea Party and Trump. But liberal public interest reformers in the 1970s also critiqued and fought government agencies, removing the shine from ambitious governance. That may have left American politics with few defenders of big government. This week, I talked to Paul Sabin of Yale University about his new Norton book, Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. He tracks the role of Ralph Nader, environmental and good government groups, in undermining New Deal liberalism by characterizing government's role as helping regulated industries rather than advancing the public interest. But I also talked to Amy Freed of the University of Maine about her new Columbia book with Douglas Harris, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. She tells the more traditional story. Conservatives found a way to undermine government to help themselves electorally and organizationally and move public policy rightward. Freed argues that Republicans intended to build distrust and succeeded. What this book does is it it looks at the phenomena of distrust in government and argues that it's not inadvertent or at least not completely inadvertent as a consequence of other kinds of phenomena. Instead, what Doug Harris and I argue is that Republican leaders have made an attempt over many decades to promote and employ distrust in government for four strategic purposes. And those four purposes are to use the trust organizationally to build and maintain organizations in elections as a, an electoral um, arguments and uh, you know set of uh, set of uh, appeals. Um, also institutionally, in order to argue that certain institutions they don't tr- they don't uh, occupy uh, des- that those don't deserve trust and in fact should be the objects of distrust, and then to shift power towards the institutions they do control. And then also as part of policy arguments. That's really the, the key argument there. Along with it, though, there's a larger historical context that Americans have often distrusted government, that there's nothing really unusual about that. You know, you can go back to the very early days of the Republic, even before the Republic was formed. And um, that it's a complex relationship between political elites and a distrustful public, because on the one hand, it can be very helpful to rouse members of the public with these distrustful messages. At times, they can also get a bit out of hand and be difficult to control. And then those individuals will, will turn on some of the Republican leaders and maybe take them to far afield to extreme. But Saban aimed to bring liberals into the explanation for the decline of government. I wrote, I wrote Public Citizens really to understand better the decline of uh, big government liberalism from uh, between the Johnson uh, presidency and Reagan, and just trying to make sense of that journey between the, the expansive government, peer, government of, of that period and, and Reagan's election. 
it's all it you know it's often attributed now to the uh, rise of conservatism and the election of Ronald Reagan and 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 there's, and there's a popular story right now that kind of positions liberals as defending the government and conservatives as attacking it and I, what I was trying to show in in the book is that this story is actually more complicated um, and that in the 1960s and 70s liberals increasingly were attacking the government and they were trying to break up the uh, kind of coalition that was uh, between big big business and big government and labor and that it uh, that, that in order to understand the decline of what we consider the New Deal order or the, the, this uh, kind of post-war administrative constellation of, of power uh, we need to look on the left as well as on the right uh, and I, I come at this from an environmental perspective, so I should also emphasize that a lot of the examples that I use are in the related to the rise of the environmental movement and trying to uh, make sense of uh, uh, the way that the environmental movement was really attacking many of the achievements of big government liberalism, including the, the dams and the highways and redevelopment programs and water management programs, uh, the spraying of pesticides. Uh, it was really a, a, an attack on the, the way that the government was using uh, technology and science uh, and and uh, its, its might uh, in the post-war period uh, and, and kind of rising up in resistance uh, against that. Sabin was motivated by his prior work on the environmental movement and practical political concerns. Working on the book also was influenced by my previous uh, previous work. Uh, before coming to Yale, I was uh, I founded a nonprofit environmental leadership organization, and we were trying to reshape the environmental movement for the the current current moment, make it more diverse, help to think about it as more. Um, putting forward a, a positive agenda for uh, environmental change as opposed to simply being reactive and trying to assess you know, what has worked and what hasn't worked uh, since the 1970s generation. And so that, that certainly was in play in, in thinking about this book, trying to make sense of you know, what were the successes and what were the limitations of the, this sort of founding generation of the, of the, new envir- of the environmentalism of the, the 60s and 70s. Freed and Harris built out of their work on the 1990s conflict between Clinton and Gingrich. That very first paper had to do with the Clinton administration, but you know it's only later that the papers of that were available. And I, you know, I went to Little Rock, Arkansas, and spent a lot of time working in the archives. And Doug also had by then found a lot of uh, papers, been working with a lot of papers from from Gingrich and others. So uh, you know, we we built upon this very very early work, but really it goes back, you know, the, for, with the first publication twenty years ago. Let's dig into each story, starting with Sabin in the 1960s and 1970s and the central role of Ralph Nader. Nader is a, is a terrific character for uh, making sense of this. Uh, he, he bridges the what, what I see as the public intellectuals of the early 1960s, uh, people like uh, Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, uh, you know, Nader, these people who wrote these, these big books that were criticisms of, the, of liberalism from, uh, from the left or from the liberals from the liberalism itself. And then Nader, unlike uh, Carson, who sadly died, died you know, quite early after uh, Silent Spring, and Jacobs, who moved to Canada, Nader then becomes uh, an organizational entrepreneur. And so I think he is a fascinating character because of the way he bridges that, uh, that early, you know, that, the, the big book writing public intellectual critic to the nonprofit advocacy entrepreneurs of the ni- late 60s and the early 1970s. And so he creates dozens of nonprofit organizations and, and kind of brings uh, really thousands of uh, you know, young people into uh, a public interest movement. And those groups go on to have lives uh, independent of him. And he, in some ways, uh, sort of uh, uh, gets left behind by the movement that he helps create. And by the end of the 1970s, I think that uh, the institutionalization of the uh, nonprofit advocacy movement is not a good match for 
Nader as a sort of quirky, somewhat crank, uh, occasionally cranky critic who, who likes to have small organizations and chaotic systems and the, the advocacy community becomes much more institutional, uh, you know, benefits packages and careers and people, you know, anticipating they're going to spend their lives in these organizations. Nader had much more of a churn uh, mentality where young people would come in and leave and that became less of a fit. So I think that, but for the time period that I'm principally looking at in this book, you know, between six, you know, 65 and 80, you know, Nader, I think is a, is a terrific character for making sense of the, you know, the rise of these uh, set of organizations. And, and I think he was tremendously influential. The liberal groups saw themselves as creating a counterforce to government, even regularly suing government agencies. And if you go back and look at, you know, the grant proposals to the Ford Foundation, which funded many of the early environmental groups, these you know, proposals were very explicit uh, about the need to watch over and sue and hold accountable uh, the agent, you know, the federal, federal agencies. If you look at the litigation docket of groups like the Environmental Defense Fund or the Natural Resource Defense Council, Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, you know, in their, you know, in the early 1970s, you know, 90% of their legal actions were directed at uh, some kind of government agency. And we can talk about, you you know, why, why that was. I mean, certainly sometimes they also were trying, you know, they were trying to also target a, an industry group that was sort of behind the federal action, but they were suing primarily directed, directly the federal agencies. And if you look at the internal, uh, you know, documents of the Ford Foundation, it's very explicit um, that they were trying to create a counterforce to government. And, and they talk in that language of government as being a problem uh, that, that you have to create this external third force outside of government that can watch over it, can hold it accountable and can, uh, you know, make it do the right thing. There's a sense of it having lost its way. And, uh, and Ford and these and the Folks starting these groups were, were trying to create this counterforce. They were happy to gain influence, but realized later that they didn't really change the system. So they sort of fought to get their seat at the table. And I think that looking back on that, some of the folks who I interviewed who were involved in starting these organizations and, and leading this sort of legal advocacy movement have thought, well, may, maybe we took a bit of a misstep uh, because we didn't actually build a larger social movement. We didn't try to build political power. What we tried to do was just become one of the inside the Beltway players and that that actually did not lead to the kind of large scale transformation of the system or its outcomes uh, you know, that, that, that we wanted. Uh, so uh, at the same time, you know, at the, at the beginning, I think it's just important to remember it, it was a tremendously seductive. Uh, you know, you know these small organizations. I, I, there's one uh, one story I have of James Mormon was a lawyer at the account, uh, Center for Law and Social Policy, and, and they were suing to try to block the Alaskan pipeline. He describes you know when the uh, temporary injunction gets put down, uh, you know how he sort of fades off into this haze, uh, you, know, of you know the delusion, just of how how amazing it was. You know, and this is a small group. They're like located. Uh, I, you know, at first they have a, like a copier on the, in the townhouse of one of their founders. They're in these dingy, you know, it's like barely even a, an organization that exists. And they've start, stopped one of the temporarily stopped one of the largest uh, construction projects in, in American history. So, you know, it's tremendously seductive, uh, you know, the power. And this was partly due to a receptive judiciary. And one of the things that they would later learn uh, was that that really wasn't something that could be counted on. And I think that was another, uh, you know, misstep. Liberal public interest groups also played a role in the birth of post-materialism. In some ways, it was it was deliberate, and it was a redefinition of what material concerns are. I mean, certainly uh, things like clean air and clean water, and you know, not getting poisoned by things. Those can't be much more material than that. But it was a shift away from a previous uh, definition of material well-being that was primarily focused on you know wages and uh, jobs and and prices and things like that. But I think that uh, and so some of the struggles that they had with the labor unions themselves uh, were trying to you know was an argument about. You know what counted as uh, uh, as material issues uh, that influenced 
uh, the workers. So you could take an example like black lung uh, disease and whether the union should be, uh, you know, fighting, how hard should the union be fighting to protect uh, worker health as opposed to, uh, you know, focusing solely on, you know, contractual uh, jobs and wages and, and, and other agreements. And, and there was a sense in the in the union democracy movement and the union reform movement, people like someone like Jack Yablonsky, who is a you know, really important character uh, in this, uh, who Nader is uh, closely tied with, you know, that, that, that they need to broaden, you know, what, you know, what issues uh, were, were were part of this, uh, but but it, it is a shift of what the issues were, and it did break up some of the material focus of the Democratic coalition. And that's part of the story that, you know, that I'm trying, uh, trying to tell. Their arguments were tied to institutional reform, but they may not have gotten the results they wanted. There was a close link between the messaging and, and the reforms, uh, whether it came to you know, campaign finance, Freedom of Information Act, Sunshine Laws, other, you know, other you know, NEPA's re, you know, requirements for public participation and, you know, and, and for environmental impact statements, the weakening of the committee chairs. All, all of these things were, were, uh, were, were, were considered to be uh, reforms that were necessary to, uh, to break apart the, the power structure that was uh, doing things that these folks thought were bad. Uh, and, uh, and I think that so, so uh, I think it's important to, you know, recognize it as a, as a, as, as actually a deliberate strategy, but that looking back, I think that, um, that, that people have realized just, you know, some, some have realized that, well, actually maybe the results of that uh, were not what people wanted. And you see that with the return of earmarks, you see that with questioning or, you know, concern about what is, what is, um, you know, what happens when, when you have uh, nonpartisan redistricting uh, commissions in some states, but not in other states. Liberals attacked government despite believing in it. The folks who I'm writing about, these liberal reformers, they truly believe in government and uh, uh, that government is uh, uh, supposed to represent the public interest and, and they want government to do things. Uh, so that is a, you know, a fundamental difference there. And uh, you know, their critique was that the government had been captured, uh, that it was betraying the public interest. But, but I think what's, what's important to note just in terms of uh, uh, thinking about the ways in which they actually were attacking the system is that they you know, very explicitly were saying that big government you know, big labor, uh, big business, that, that, that this was a, a, co a coalition of forces uh, that, that, that needed to be weakened, uh, that needed to be sort of broken apart, that there needed to be uh, challenges uh, to it. Uh, so there was a there was a, a deliberate effort to weaken that system. And so I think that that, I guess, is, is important to note. They, they wanted a different result. Uh, a very different result. And, you know, the Reagan conservatism and all that has followed from that is is in many ways, the opposite of what they uh, would have wanted. But they were uh, systematically, you know, trying trying to challenge and redirect powerful agencies that they thought were uh, were you know, not representing the public. They ended up echoing conservative arguments against government. You can look and you can see, you know, common uh, rhetoric and you can see also how it kind of comes together in the deregulatory movement of the late 70s and in which there's a sense, you know, there's a car, you know, talk about how government is the cartel, government is the monopoly. You know, you have Ted Kennedy talking about how you uh, uh, need to uh, break up the ways in which uh, government and business are, are, uh, are working so closely together and not representing the consumer, not representing the public, the system. So, so yeah, no, I mean, there is a common rhetoric there. I guess the, the question is, you know, what are they trying to aspire to. And what the liberal reformers were aspiring to was a reformed government that would still be active, whereas the conservative uh, movement was trying to pull back the government and, and not have it be doing anything. And, and they sort of dis, 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 uh, dismissed the idea that these were legitimate goals and, and purposes. Freed agrees that liberals aren't arguing as much against government, but have trouble finding a middle ground. There are some differences here in that what those groups do 
And the things that they argue, I mean, they actually want government to do more. They want government to do things better, to hold private power to account, which is, you know, traditionally one of the one of the purposes of government. But um, so, you know, in some ways, they're they're not really arguing against government. They're they're arguing about how government is operating in particular ways. I do think that a certain amount of skepticism towards government is a good thing. I mean, we're in no way, Doug Harris and I are in no way arguing that people should give up skepticism of government or not try to hold government to account. That's absolutely necessary in any kind of democratic system, any kind of republic to to have the watchful eye of citizens on government. So, you know, it could be that there's a, a more sort of cross-pressured view on the left in uh, views towards government where there's this, you know, skeptical eye while at the same time wanting government to accomplish more. And that that's a more difficult kind of argument maybe to make than, you know, coming out and opposing the idea of government and, and, and big government or, you know, government that's effective in accomplishing things. Republicans are better able to use government when they're in power, even if they undermine it generally. I would point to distrust as an available resource for them, and there's been enough cultivation of it that it's available uh, to be used, you know, relatively easily roused in, in certain ways. But I'd also say that one of the things that we point to is the situational nature of distrust, where certain parts of government deserve trust and sometimes and not in other times, or it depends on um, the particular the particular president who who's there and what kind of arguments that that they're making. And you know, so this kind of institutional part of our argument, I think, is really important in this respect. So that, for example, when Newt Gingrich is trying to gain power for Republicans in Congress, he's arguing that Congress is far too powerful and that is not the way the founders would want it to be. But once he becomes speaker, he flips (laughs) quite, quite quickly to to arguing the, the importance of Congress for holding the president accountable. And you see similar shifts also with uh, different leaders when it comes to presidential power, where Obama is painted in the GOP party platform of 2016 as far too powerful, tyrannical, etc. And then uh, there's a you know a wholesale shift to supporting presidential power when when Trump becomes president. Conservative attacks focus on government as a whole, meaning they can coexist within consistent views. I think one sort of strategy that's very much predictable from, you know, political science research from a very, again, a very long time ago from the 1970s is that people tend to say they dislike government far more than they dislike particular government programs. So if you're going to attack government, you attack government often with pretty broad brush kinds of criticisms, Uh, talk about socialism, Marxism, tyranny, that sort of thing. Uh, While it can be hard then to undermine particular government programs that are in fact very popular. But we also know that a lot of times people don't, you know, register that certain things 
fit the category of government. You know, think of uh, Suzanne Mettler's research on the submerged state. So, you know, this ability of people to hold contradictory views is is very well uh, established and, and it's supported by these other kinds of dynamics. Trump is a manifestation of this pattern, but he takes it into new directions. We really do see Trump as fitting in many ways with this longer scale tendency and dynamic. However, he really is not the same. He, he really is different. He's a much more uh, extreme and anti-democratic elements in just really much more overt xenophobia in attacking certain parts of the government that hadn't been attacked before from the right, such as the, you know, the FBI, sometimes the military, the national security, you know, so there, there are certainly a number of things where, where he's very different. Um, you know, you can see some, you know, like our, our first very focused case study is, is Reagan. And there's some similarities, but Reagan as a former governor had had a had had experience in governing and he wanted to govern and he you know he 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 was interested <laughs> in being able to accomplish certain things and although he did promote distrust in government in certain ways he certainly didn't do it in the in the same ways and he did not have that degree of he did not have xenophobia his his farewell address upon living, leaving the presidency, talked about the openness of America as part of his vision of it as a shining city set on a hill and talked about immigrants as contributing to that. So there, there really have been some, some significant differences over time. Freed says there's a long trajectory of racial views coinciding with broad negative views of government. We do make the argument that race has always or has long time been a part of these different arguments about trust and the uses of distrust in government. You know, there's, there's, as you know, there is a lot of literature on the Tea Party. I think it's sort of fascinating that the book that Theda Scotchmore and Vanessa Williamson wrote really picked up on the anti-immigrant kinds of attitudes in the Tea Party, you know, of, of people who were involved in the Tea Party, that that was something that I, I think hadn't gotten that much attention. People saw the race, racialized messages with, um, you know, let's say posters of Obama as a African chieftain with a bone in his nose and, you know, some of the language that was used, but it was also connected with, with anti immigrant messages and some messages aimed at younger people and their social values. You know, on the other hand, there have been cultural kinds of messages used by Republicans for quite a long time. Um, I, I believe it was Nixon who, who ran against acid amnesty and abortion. Um, you know, so, you know, you have some of those messages over, over a period of time. But, you know, if you look at what's happened to the coalitions and the movement of the South uh, into the Republican Party. And the, there's obviously a greater divide between the parties based on, based on issues around race. And, uh, you know, like Alan Abramowitz's work and is a great example of that. But, you know, there's certainly lots of, lots of research on that. So, you know, I do think, uh, you know, and we, we do make the argument that race is, is a part of what's going on. And then we argue at the very end that there's really not that much 
there, you know, there are some things that people try to do to reduce the impact of racialized messages, but that's, that's like, you know, basically almost impossible to do anything about, really. You know, to counter this, you need to organize uh, other people in other ways and, you know, make, make other kinds of arguments about, about government, uh, more positive arguments about government that in some ways Democrats have, been, have often been very loath to do. But she sees a key turn in the Clinton administration. When it comes to, you know, the, the broad sweep of things, I, I think, you know, the Gingrich years or the Clinton slash Gingrich years are really an important turning point because you really start seeing very strategic focused uses of distrust in, in government during that time. And although, you know, the use of polling by presidents goes back a long way. The Roosevelt administration, Franklin Roosevelt's administration, used polling internally, both in by um, bureaucracies and in, in politics. And actually, my second book, Pathways to Polling, has an awful lot about that, about uh, the use of polling in those days. You don't see as much use within Congress for, for quite a long time. And Gingrich was very much, a, you know, a strategist. I'm sure he sees himself that way. And he really emphasized these kinds of messages in order to run against the Democratic Congress and take control. Freed and Harris focus on Republican elites, but see a complex process. What we're arguing is mostly an argument about political elites. It's about what, what leaders are doing in, among Republicans where there are other stories to be told about this whole situation, including what is happening or has happened on the left, uh, doesn't preclude the use of distrust by the left, what, what the arguments that we're making. And it doesn't portray citizens as unwitting pawns. We're not at all saying that people are just, you know, completely subject to manipulation or anything like that. There's a, there's a more complex relationship between leaders and citizens than, than that kind of story. Sabin sees it all as somewhat inevitable due to problems in the prior New Deal system. This New Deal or sort of post, post-World War II system that it had within itself the seeds of its own uh, decline uh, is part of what I'm arguing. And that that's why it was coming from both the left and the right. Uh, and that it was actually doing things that were problematic, you know, whether it was building freeways through neighborhoods, uh, like I said, or you know, spraying pesticides uh, early in the period, you know, testing atomic weapons and, and, and spreading radiation. Uh, the, you know, there were a lot, a lot of things going on that were very, very problematic, you know, out, coming out of the system. Uh, and so I do think that it was inevitable that there would be a rising up against that, um, you know, whether, uh, you know, whether we want to like blame the public interest movement for Reagan, uh, you know, that, that's a difficult thing to set to, to kind of sort of sort out. Um, I do think that they contributed uh, to the rise of this conservatism because they were deliberate. And I say they were intentionally uh, weakening the system that Reagan was also attacking. Uh, and so, I mean, it seems like that, that, you know, contr- certainly contr- contributed to Reagan's ability to, uh, to, to also attack that same system. Government was giving us reasons not to trust it, and it's hard to make better. 
it is not a coincidence that it came out, you know, that, that, this, that this movement was founded during the first term of the Nixon administration, you know, between 1968 and 1972 is when many of these public interest organizations that I write about were founded. And it's the, you know, the height of the Vietnam War. There's a sense of a government that you can't be, you know, Watergate then happens. You shouldn't be trusting the government uh, when they're you know, actively lying, uh, you know, to you about very important things. Uh, so the idea that there would be a lack of trust is not, not you know, shouldn't be a surprise uh, that it would come out of this. And that's why you have things like the Freedom of Information Act getting strengthened um, because there's a need to force the secrets uh, out of the government. So I, so I guess that the thing that I, that I think is interesting that I want to emphasize about the, my, you know, what, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, there is a, uh, you know, there was a legitimate um, need or, or, or legitimate reasons for why the the liberal reformers uh, were challenging the system. Uh, they were why they were distrustful of the system. Why they were trying to weaken it. Um, but at the same, so but what they were trying to do was not take it down. <laughs> they they were trying to. Uh, and, and the thing that the great challenge, I guess, of, of that I associate with the Carter administration in particular, although I think it's continued afterwards, is that what what I see Carter trying to do uh, is balance the public interest critique. Uh, with the idea of uh, an active government. Uh, and I think ultimately he fails to, to, to sell this message. Um, but what Carter uh, is try, tries to do, he brings all these liberal reformers into the government. He's trying to initiate uh, governmental actions uh, to further uh, 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 the idea of uh, the government protecting the public in various ways. But at the same time, he, he tries to institute constant process of reform that uh, is internal. And, and I, I uh, think there's this one great moment when, this, when I, I think these two things happen. Uh, at the same time, it's this one morning uh, when Carter signs two bills, the Paperwork Reduction Act and the Superfund uh, Law. And, and I think this really just encapsulates uh, what Carter was trying to achieve uh, and the challenges uh, of it. But he was Superfund is like was an effort to, uh, you know, have government actively uh, address uh, hazardous pollution, hazardous waste, clean up the lands that have been polluted. Uh, paperwork reduction was uh, sort of the other side was uh, like, how do you reform the government? And, and what's interesting about you know, Carter's messages on those on that day is that he believed passionately in both of them. They both you know, had deep resonances for him as an environmentalist uh, and as a government reformer. Uh, and what Carter was trying to do was say that you could have Superfund and paperwork reduction. And in fact, that's what we had to aspire to. But I think that what happened was Superfund becomes the last you know, big environmental law for a while. And then paperwork reduction uh, becomes a tool for the Reagan uh, you know, conservatives to uh, uh, you know, really try to uh, roll back uh, regulation. The bottom line is that it's hard to defend the government while seeking to reform it. One argument would be to say that all of these criticisms from both left and right of the government are uh, minimal and uh, should be disregarded, and we should just assert the benefits of the government and uh, and, and even you know and and sort of push aside our awareness of these flaws and just say that uh, okay, it's it's compromised, uh, not perfect, but it's but it but is the best, and we just have to support it. Um, so that would be one message. Another message that's more complicated, but I think more accurate, which would be to try to incorporate the critique that I'm associating with these liberal reformers, critique of the government as uh, 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 having uh, flaws, uh, limitations, um, but ultimately being a force for good. Uh, but how do you then articulate a view of, uh, of government that is uh, uh, both necessary, but also in a constant need for reform? And I think that uh, Democrats have been sort of struggling uh, with this latter message uh, uh, really since Carter, as I was describing. But I think, uh, you know, Clinton uh, reinventing government initiative was related to that. 
you know, trying to both articulate a positive vision of government uh, while also acknowledging the need for uh, reform uh, of the government. And I, th I think that uh, more recently, we've been seeing some of the first example where let's just spend a lot of money. Uh, let's just do a lot of big things. Uh, and but I think underlying that are the are the other concerns, you know, that they're going to come back. And I think that's true about things like the infrastructure bill could see that happening, uh, where if you start looking more closely at some of the infrastructure ideas, you might see, I don't know, whether it's highway proposals that, you know, with, you know reconstruction or development that, that may or may not, you know, makes as great sense at closer examination or, or other things. So I think that, um, that that's sort of how I see the, the struggle between those two different ways of defending government and, uh, the, you know, the effort to try to uh, take the new the, this nuanced one is very difficult to uh, communicate. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous episodes. Do Americans implicitly trust government despite our public anger? Why Americans dislike government even when it works? Are the Democratic or Republican parties becoming more similar or different? And how bureaucrats make good policy? Thanks to Paul Sabin and Amy Freed for joining me. Please check out Public Citizens and At War With Government and then listen in next time.